when I started my career, the importance of analytics and an analyst was your ability to figure out how to get more and more data. Success now is your ability to figure out all the data to ignore. It's, it's what you should discard, not what you should accumulate. Welcome to Future View. And this week, I have on a very special guest. Avinash Kalshik may not be that well known in the world of traditional market research, but he's extremely well known in the world of marketing analytics. Both as the best-selling author of Web Analytics, An Hour a Day, and the follow-up, Web Analytics 2.0. His blog, Occam's Razor, through multiple senior marketing roles at Google, and now as Chief Strategy Officer of Crowd, a UK-originated full-service digital marketing agency. One of the many interesting things about Crowd is that they've been building from a stellar track record in the performance marketing world, tying this together with upper funnel and brand activity. In terms of measurement and research, that's an ongoing challenge for companies that have often struggled to bridge the gap between consumer claimed and performance-based metrics. Now, Avinash is the perfect person to provide a primer on some of the key techniques on how to do this successfully. And he's a very engaging interviewee with a real knack for encapsulating complicated themes into snappy sound bites. You may just have to forgive our small digression into pies. You'll see what I mean. This episode is brought to you by Human Made Machine, specialist in creative testing and media optimization research. Now, HMM is one of the few companies I've come across that can show proven relationships between pre-flight testing and what actually happens in market. So to break that down a bit, HMM has been working with some of the world's biggest brands to proactively identify creative that's going to fail, hence they're saving clients money, and then optimizing ROI for creative that's going to succeed, so bringing in new customers. They've been ahead of the AI curve right from the outset, with advanced machine learning built into their systems for years, enhancing speed, efficiency, and quality of analysis. To find out more and potentially get a discounted first set of tests, visit humanmademachine.com. That's humanmademachine.com. Now, onto the interview. So, Avinash, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I've been really, really looking forward to doing this. No, thank you so much for inviting me, Henry. I'm excited to be here. No, fantastic. Now, could I start off by asking for one of your secrets? There's lots about you on the web because you've got a very successful blog, which we'll come on to in a moment. You're a successful author. Um, but what's something that most people wouldn't know about you? <laughs> oh, there's a lot. There's a lot. Uh, one of the things I, I do as your life becomes more complicated and bigger is you make your life as small as possible. So they can do more things. Uh, but what, maybe it's something people would be surprised is um, I watch very little TV, almost none at all. Uh, mm. I just watch uh, the San Francisco Giants games because we're a very big baseball family. Uh, but now that I live in London most of the time, they play at two o'clock our local time in the night. So I, I barely watch any TV now. So, so you're not part of that water cooler thing around succession or whatever else the latest, you know, the latest sensation has been. Sadly, no. But I, I do, I do read every Vogue write-up on Rupert Murdoch and his family. I find that entertaining enough. <laughs> yes, no, I mean that—that that is a big subject in, in itself. <laughs> uh, now, I, I'd love to get into some background and your journey through the industry. But first of all, I had a really, really important question for you yes. from some of my background uh, reading on you. Can you tell me why you should eat pies but not chart them? <laughs> uh, so, pie charts uh, are very common because you know one of the default visualizations in um, in. Um, Excel or in Google Sheets, uh, the, the scientific research suggests that people, uh, uh, most people are unable to 
understand the size of the differences by looking at slices of a pie, or since being able to understand those differences in sizes on a stacked bar, as an example. So there's this reach of the humans. Uh, let's say a slice of a pie is 30%, and another slice is 40%. That's a 10-point difference. But in a pie chart, mm. it's much harder to notice that difference versus if it was in a stacked bar, and this is 30, this is 40. It's much easier to see. So it's it's for scientific reasons that we... As a visual, it sadly fails if you have more than three slices. So if you have more than three slices. Mm. Um, and the differences have to be very big for the audience to internalize like, wow, this difference is 10 points. Now you get below 10 points, the slices look kind of sort of the same. So th they impede interpretation of the data. So I always say, eat pies but don't share them. <laughs> and, and now, obviously, I have to ask, do you eat pies as well, especially given you're now living in London? You know, in some ways, it, it's the home of pies. Yes, no, definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm a fan. Uh, uh, I live in the Silicon Valley in California. That's where I spent the last uh, 25 years. And we are very blessed to have a lot of uh, strawberry apple farms. So there's a particular orchard we drive to about 35 minutes away. And uh, they take the apples from the trees. In the morning, they start baking pies. And we come in around 12 o'clock and take literally fresh, fresh apple, rhubarb, peach pies and, oh, to die for. Oh, those sound amazing. But then I was wondering about the savory type of pies. Yes. But the type, you know, the type you get at football matches in the UK and, yes. uh, or, you know, chicken, ham and mushroom and that type of thing. I, I, I do. And actually, the, the savory kinds I found, uh, I have, as a vegetarian, uh, there is far more choice for me in London because London has more uh, vegetarian options for pies than, say, when I'm in Germany or, or, or parts of America where it's really hard to find uh, savory vegetarian pies. But there's a lot of creativity in that area in London. Yeah, yeah. We probably shouldn't spend too much time on these <laughs> pies. And so, yeah, that's interesting. So it's something about human psychology. I can imagine, or maybe just the way we've evolved, as you say, trying to see those differences on a pie that's chart it, as, as opposed yeah. to a stacked chart yes. where, where it's easier to see that type of thing. There, I, I think there's generally a gap between visualizations that sort of go up to the leadership team and they're used to and they always ask, sometimes they ask for them versus the analytics community who understands pie charts are useless. They all know that because the scientific research is very clear, but they're unable to pull themselves out and stop doing them because their boss might say, can I make this into a pie chart or a donut? Donut's even worse. Yeah. I, I think there's also a really interesting component that you just touched on. I can very much see that at board level though. And yes. in some ways yes. it enables you to look better at the pie chart. So for instance, <laughs> you might you you might you might be second and for the sake of argument you've got 35% market share and your competitors right, right. got 55 and then it sort of makes you look big visually <laughs> whereas if it's if it's a stacked chart like that it, it actually makes you look very very small <laughs> yes no no i agree I, I think i wrote a newsletter on the cardinal sins of of data visualization because so many people manipulate it's so easy to manipulate your visuals right so uh one of the most common practice another post uh that that uh, little went uh, viral on linkedin and twitter was uh, I said, uh, anybody who changes the y-axis from zero is committing a crime against humanity. Because 
One of the big ways to show big variations in data is to start the y-axis at 35, and the number is going on 35, 37. It looks like there's big swings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and if, you, if you plot it at zero, you realize it's basically kind of sort of a flat line. So there's yes. so many ways to make data look better than it actually is. <laughs> yeah, that, that that is cheeky, I would say, changing <laughs> the axis, trying to do that. As we're talking about the newsletter, do, do you want to just give a, a little bit of background on, on that, actually, about, about where, where people can find it and how they can support it? Because I know that you also make some very significant contributions to charity through your newsletter. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I, 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 um, one of the things I, I did very early on is, is when I Wiley approached me to write my first book, um, I, I turned to my wife and I said, uh, I write just to return what I have learned from other people. It's, it's my way to pay forward. So let's just donate it all to charity. And, and at, at that time, we were not quite well off. And so I'd never in my life received a check for $10,000, which was my advance from Wiley. And so I was like, nobody's going to pay us 10 grand. Look again, who's going to buy a book? So we both decided to donate to charity. And, and uh, amazingly, the book became best-selling in like a dozen languages. Uh, so that sort of started the ball rolling for me to use my writing to raise money for charity. And uh, so I, I kept writing the blog. Uh, then at some point, I realized I wanted to write for more diversity of topics. I mostly write a newsletter now, weekly newsletter. And when the George Floyd protests happened in the U.S. Uh, two and a half years ago, I decided that I want to raise even more money to support charities that work with uh, human rights and, and civil liberties. So I made my newsletter into a paid newsletter. So at the time, I had around 40,000 subscribers for the weekly newsletter. And I said, I'm going to just make people pay $100 a year to <laughs> for the newsletter. And I donate all the money to charity. I, I actually didn't think people would pay. It's, it's, yeah. I should stop doubting people's ability to pay for content. Because <laughs> you can get Disney Plus cheaper than signing up for my newsletter. Depends what you're into, though, doesn't it? I mean, if you, it, like Marvel, it, yeah. if you like Marvel, Disney Plus is probably yeah, a better yeah. value. If you like data and uh, marketing analytics, your newsletter is yeah. better yeah. value. So now in two and a half years, the, the newsletter has raised approximately $500,000 for charity. Uh, I, I donate uh, gross revenue. I, I take all the costs of doing that. I, I pay for them myself. Um, but I'm, I'm so excited that the community of people who are part of this ecosystem subscribe to the newsletter. And last, year, last year's donation was $200,000 to charities focusing on human rights and civil liberties. And um, it makes me happy. I see it as a community contributing, uh, you know, our, our conversation around data and marketing um, into something that can do a small amount of good for the world. So uh, it's called the newsletter, it's called the Marketing Analytics Intersect. Um, and there's a free version that goes out every five weeks and then a paid one that goes out every week. Um, and I'm, I'm so proud of our industry. I'm so proud of the readers and subscribers to help me, help me raise a uh, for me, a, a significant amount of money for charity. I, I think it's fantastic. And obviously, I'll put the link in the show notes. And then the book is still in print as well. Could you talk a little bit about the book and also just your, your background in the industry? I mean, you work for some very big names, obviously, you know, you know, DirecTV, Silicon Graphics, of course, Google. Could you give, a uh, for those who are less familiar with you, a little bit of your your, your background? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Uh, yeah, I wrote uh, I wrote the book uh, when I was at Intuit, the job I had before Google, uh, because Wiley came and said they want to make my blog into a book. I'd only been writing for six months at that point, hmm. so it took a while. It took some effort to write a book because uh, uh, the blog is random. The book can't be random. 
It's kind of a beginning and the middle. Uh, and then a year and a half later, I wrote the second book, Web Addicts 2.0. Uh, and since then, my publisher has been hounding me because the second book is 10 years old. And it's still amazing to my shock and surprise retains a 4.5 rating on Amazon. Now, I, I, I begged Wiley to pull it because some of the ideas I had, are, I have better ideas now, uh, but I just haven't uh, had time to... to uh, sorry, to and, I, and if I jump in, sorry, what, what is the uh, the name of the book? And could you just describe, yes, yes. yeah, just what, what was in it, just for those who are less familiar? Of course. Uh, so the first book is by Balantrix and Aura Day, and it was very much uh, a beginner's guide to doing web analytics. And then later I wrote Web Analytics 2.0. And in that sort of, I stretched the definition of, of analytics. And um, Web Analytics 2.0 very much is a think book in the sense that it doesn't tell you uh, uh, here are here is the buttons to press in Google Analytics or Adobe Analytics and things. It just says, um, when you think about analytics, segmentation is important. Mediabix models are important. Uh, so it's very much uh, a book. One of my favorite quotes is, um, it's not the ink, it's the think. Um, I apply that to everything. So Babaji's two point is a think book. And I think that's why it keeps selling so far because uh, the, the ideas about how to think about doing sophisticated analytics, the principles, the best practices, the methodologies you apply, those all sustain. While if I had written a book about how to use a tool, that would become stale a year later. It's been very successful, as you say, and it's lasted. And if you focused on the think part of it rather than necessarily yeah. the ink, what are, say, the two or three overarching messages that one could, uh, one should take out of it? Yeah. So, uh, absolutely. One of the, uh, one of my core, uh, core belief systems is that data is never sufficient to change culture in an organization. It, it, the analyst's job is not to tell what happened as they can read in the data but what to do about it. And most analysts don't feel their job is to find the things to do. Their job is to say, I found this interesting thing in the data. I've made a, I've made a visual about it so you can more easily understand what's going on inside it. As to what you should do about it, well, that's your job. And, and I have a model I called IABI, which is to say, the, the fact that you found something in the data or created a report or a dashboard is just the beginning of the journey. Then your job is to find what the insight is. The next step is to figure out what the actions are and then predict the business impact of the action. So for example, here's a report for search. Okay, happy birthday. What's the insight? Mm. The insight is, oh, this following things changed in Germany dramatically. Our non-branded keywords are performing fantastically, but we're spending 10% of the budget on them. That's the insight. Now, what do you do? Change your audience targeting strategy, change your ad groups, change mm. your creative. You know, both of us are connected, Henry, to HMM. And so for me, a lot of roads lead back to the creative. Mm. That's the action. But the magic is business impact. It's the ability to say, do this in Germany. This action will result in incremental $2 million in revenue. 300,000 more visits, whatever the outcome is, because it's the business impact that will create an urgency for action. Hmm. So this is sort of one of the concepts that's sort of in the book, in my writing, that's kind of a belief system. Uh, another one over the last three years, uh, thanks to the 
to the encouragement of the CFO of Alphabet, to whom I had to report effectiveness of Google's own marketing every six months or so, uh, she sort of pushed me super hard to obsess about incrementality. So if you open your Google Analytics account, it will tell you that yesterday we received uh, a thousand conversions from Facebook. The incrementality question is, what would have happened if we spent no money on Facebook? It turns out you would have received 800 of the thousand conversions anyway. So the incrementality is just 200. And so I am obsessed about incrementality-centric marketing. And then you'll see that in all my writing now. So those are just two of the concepts that sort of the kind of things when I say I obsess about the think, that's what I obsess mm -hmm. about. And, and my goal is, hope is to sort of go into the brains of the readers, rewire some of the things. And now yeah. they have a new way to think about the possibilities in the world. Yeah, well, I, I think there are lots of strands to pick up on on on, on that front. Um, HMM, by the way, is human made machine. Where I should say, for full disclosure, I, I'm the chair, and Avinash has been a big supporter in the work that um, HMM was doing for Google. Um, go, going to the first point that you made around the importance of you know pulling the data, aggregating, visualizing it, insight, so on, so on, and action. This has been a really consistent theme in some of the interviews that I've been doing regardless of whether people are approaching it from a data analytics perspective, a consumer insight perspective, traditional market research, in that not many people are very good at doing that. It's almost like the industry is a bit too siloed. So this is your job to do this bit. This is your job to do this bit. Your job to do this bit. And the only people who actually seem to really pull it all together are actually the consultancies who therefore charge a lot more for doing that. Is, 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 yeah. that, is, is that fair in your experience? Analytics originated in the quest of, we need answers, let's go hunt and find data. So it started with this uh, 20,000 years ago. We, like, let's just collect, the, the problem was we never had enough data. And so it started from being good at information technology in our space and and parsing web logs, and where else can I scrap some more data? So it became, started with this data hunting gathering posture. So it never sort of was important to figure out, now we have all this data, let's put in a report. Oh, by the way, it's also important for somebody to figure out what the hell is in the data. So it started with hunting gathering. Now, over the last 15 years or so, it has completely flipped, where you can have unlimited data for free. You know, it doesn't even cost anything anymore. So what, what one of the things I've said is, when I started my career, the importance of analytics and an analyst was your ability to figure out how to get more and more data. Success now is your ability to figure out all the data to ignore. It's, it's what you should discard and what you should accumulate. And, and, and I think that as that shift has happened, uh, when I teach at universities now, um, I think they're beginning to see that the analyst role isn't gather data and puke it out at the organization. The analyst role is also to make sense of what's inside the data. But, but that pivot, we're still in the middle of that pivot, which is, which is why, uh, consultants or agencies step in, including a crowd, right? Uh, mm -hmm. I, I just met one of the largest fashion labels in the world this morning. And they're like, we're struggling with data and we would like crowd to come in and be our analytics agency of record. They, by the way, this fashion entity has tons of agencies to spend media and every other thing. But they're like, 
we don't know what's going on and what who to listen to and what to do. Well, c- c- congratulations on that. I think it's a really great point as well around it, it, this area that it's just as important, possibly more important, what you leave out as opposed That's to it. what you as to as to what you put in. And that reminds me of you know progressing through academics myself, where at one point, and I'm afraid I did lots of art subjects, you know, so I'm guilty on that. Front. But at one point, you know, you're almost trying to get down as much as possible. And yes. then you realize that's a mistake. Actually, the more you put in, the less stands out. And actually, you get rewarded for taking a particular viewpoint and a very distinctive argument and yeah. backing it up. And and actually, there may be no rights or wrongs. But yeah, if yeah, it's yeah. distinctive, so it's, it's all, then, then then people can engage with it. Yeah, which is why the the, uh, the IAPI framework, and I'll, I'll send you a link uh, that you can attach to show notes so that people can, if they want to read more about it, there's a free newsletter they can read uh, that I wrote a little while back. But it, but that's why the BI part of IAPI is important. Is as you do the work that you're doing as an analyst or a marketer, constantly keep an eye out on, if I spend 10 hours on this thing, what's the potential business in that? Mm. Very quickly, you'll find, even if you do a rough computation, you'll find out of the seven things on your plate that there's only one that matters. You need to ignore the other six. Be be brave and ignore the other things because the other six are going to make you $10,000 each. This one thing you're focusing on is two and a half million. Yeah. There's a lot of 10,000s in two and a half million. And yet that's not the mindset we bring to the table, right? Or or, or uh, I have committed uh, industry uh, terrible things by telling people now, stop focusing on attribution. It's a waste of time. Focus on incrementality. It doesn't matter how you distribute 100,000 claimed conversions. It's more important for you to figure out how many of the claimed conversions are actual (laughs) conversions to marketing, which by the way, would be less than 20,000. But but people are like, no, 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 attribution is so important. I, I like, I read everything about it. There's machine learning, blah, blah, blah. But if you compute the business impact of focusing on attribution and focusing on incrementality, there's marginal benefit to doing attribution, by the way. And it takes months and months of work versus focusing on incrementality, which would take equivalent months of work, but you're solving a completely material problem for the business. Mm, okay. And so if I double click on that without getting too technical, yes, yes, yes. How, do, how do you start to calculate incrementality then as opposed to attribution? Or maybe let's ignore the second part of the question. Let's just ignore attribution yeah, and yeah, yeah. focus on how big picture do you go about yes, calculating yes, yes. incrementality? Absolutely. That's, that's really great. Uh, so first thing, uh, is that if you want to compute attribution, it is built into tools like Google Analytics and it is available for free. You go to the multi-channel funnels folder, you click on data driven attribution. Happy birthday. You have attribution. Okay. Let's move to incrementality. There are, there are three levels at which you can measure incrementality and it goes from very fast to more to painful and time consuming to more painful and time consuming. The, the easiest thing in the world to measure is what I call channel silo incrementality. So Henry, uh, we would like more people to see human-made machines. So we have invested $500,000 into a marketing campaign in Google. So when people search for creative pre-testing, uh, sophisticated surveys, all the attributes we associate with human-made machines, um, our ads will show up. Incrementality in Google as ad platforms built into it. Reach out to Google and say, 
can we run CLS, CLS, conversion lift studies? And they just press a button and uh, it Google automatically starts to split your traffic into test and control, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, depending on the amount of money you're spending, uh, two weeks later, a week later, you get a report back. The incrementality of Google paid search is X, Y. Facebook also has incrementality testing built into its ad platform. Uh, I know TikTok and others are working on it too. So starting with incrementality is extremely easy because it's built into digital advertising platforms. Now, if if we bought a, a billboard in the New York Times Square for H&M, mm. we would have to do incrementality using test and control manually. So that's a little bit of effort. But for digital, it's built in, easy to start. All you have to do is go to the platform and say, can I please have CLS for my spend? And they know what to do. You just wait uh, the cup of coffee. Uh, the more complex incrementality to measure is across platforms. Mm-hmm. So let's say we spend 500,000 on Facebook and 500,000 on Google, and we want to know the incrementality of both of them put together. Because look, as a consumer, we use Facebook, we use Google. That you have to do manually, and you would have to have an analyst inside your org who will build what are known as NMTs, match market tests. And so it's a manual these typically take two to four months, depending on how much money you spend, but you would do it manually. But now you get a really good answer. And it will turn out this should not be spending million dollars, 500 on Facebook, 500 on Google. That uh, we get the answer back and you'll say, actually, to get incremental results, move her spend down to 700K, of which 400 be on Google, 300 on Facebook, and you'll get the same results, which is yay. Right, less money, more effective. Now somebody's got three hundred thousand dollars to buy the billboard on Times Square. The last kind of incrementality is hardest one to do, which is portfolio incrementality. If I put my HMM creative pre-testing, my email marketing, my Google, my TV, my uh, retailer promotions that I'm spending, put all of it into one bucket, and answer the question: What would happen if I fired everybody in marketing? Mm. So this That's is the question you 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 were having exactly. with the CFO of Alphabet. I remember you said exactly. to me before. Exactly. Okay, so how, how does this all work? So so uh, our approach to that is to use machine learning to answer the question by uh, using random forests, Bayesian belief networks um, that can understand the ground truth. They can understand conditional dependency between every channel, and and the the influence that flows across all marketing activity. Uh, and create a mixed model that helps us understand the portfolio incrementality. Typically, you will answer a question like this only every six months or a year, because the goal isn't to measure the effectiveness of of a tactic. That you can do with channel silo incrementality every week, every other week. It's to understand and answer the CFO's question around marketing budget, marketing effectiveness, annual planning. And so for us, it's using... uh, a machine learning based approach because the data is so complex. There's so much, uh, so many challenging things happening as you mix and merge all this data and brand and performance and everything together that the optimal approach is to use machine learning. But since you only have to answer that question once a year, once every six months, when you do budget planning, um, you have the time and the energy to do that. Um, what, what mistake I see people make is they'll say, I want the portfolio incrementality answer. Uh, but I also want to figure out how to change my tactics using the same solution. Then you've just given your consultant uh, a $500,000 contract that they will happily receive. 
we're going to come back to you in a year and a half with answers that are useless. But, and, and is that and is that is that because fundamentally you need different techniques for That's different it. questions? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. It's the three layers of question. How do I optimize my campaign? How do I redistribute my budget in marketing so that I'm always getting uh, incremental impact from every dollar of investment? Third, as we look at the next year, as we look at the future, how should we plan marketing's role so it is truly incremental? Three different questions every two weeks, every quarter, every six months. And, and of course, the, the sophistication and the complexity of the answer you provide changes at every step with the highest one being the most complex because it really is hard to figure out what would happen if we released everybody in marketing. It's legitimately hard question yeah. to answer. Yeah, 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 but yeah, very much so. There are so many things I could follow up on here, but I also wanted to zoom out a little bit yes. as well. Just so, what was it? 15, 16 years at Google and now Crowd as the chief strategy officer. So what type of issues were you addressing at Google and what, what are you now doing at Crowd? Yeah, oh, thank you. I, I started uh, at, at Google I had published my first book and they asked me to come do a keynote to all the Googlers. And when I did the keynote, I was excited too. This is 15 years ago, 16 years ago. And they said, oh, we want you to work here. And I was like, oh, that's a very weird job interview. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I said, what would I do? And they said, well, we don't know. We just want you to come work here. <laughs> so it was a very odd um, sort of process, but I, I was so thrilled uh, to, to that they would they would invite me to be a part of the company. So I spent about the first five-ish years um, helping Google uh, build analytics tools. So helping launch Google Analytics 2.0, uh, analytics inside AdWords, at the time AdWords, and all kinds of 13 different tools. Uh, because I, I believed in creating a data democracy. And what was exciting about Google is they would build all these tools and hand them out for free. That, that made me very happy because at that time it was very difficult for people to get sophisticated analytics uh, unless they had a lot of money. So this this made me happy, truly happy. Uh, so my role was as an analytics evangelist at Google, whatever that means. <laughs> it's a product role. Uh, then I, I I spent the next six-ish years in the sales organization at Google, um, building an internal McKinsey Bainish consulting practice for the top 100 Google clients. So my colleagues and I would work with the clients to help influence their overall marketing strategy, independent of what to spend on Google. But just helping companies move forward to take advantage of all opportunities digital provided. So it would not be uncommon for me to sit down with a client and help them understand how to have an optimum strategy on Facebook. Even though I worked at Google or my colleagues, our interest was just get the the client to think in a more sophisticated way about digital strategies. By the way, Google will be fine. Some of the money will definitely spend Google. So uh, absolutely, that, that, as, as you make the point. I mean, it, it's a mix, isn't it? Nobody's exactly. putting all exactly. their all their money onto exactly. Meta slash Facebook or yes. you know or, or Google. Yes. Yeah. And in the last five-ish years, I had this immense privilege to be in the uh, uh, in Lorraine Tuhill, who's the CMO of Google, uh, her organization. And, and with the uh, responsibility for the global strategic analytics team and, and actually invent new ways to, to make more sophisticated answers. And Lorraine's budget is extremely large, as it should be, uh, as the CMO of Google. But of, of course, she has the same challenge to prove to the CFO that the impact she's having across 14 businesses at Google is truly incremental. Mm -hmm. And so I, I started... Uh, 
building a team that built uh, did experimentation scorecards, dashboards, the same normal stuff. Uh, but then I thought, oh, all the money is already gone by the time we're running all this. <laughs> so we moved one step behind and said, let's create win while you spend strategies. So in-flight optimization became a very big deal. So use machine learning, use sophisticated an- analysis, automation to make decisions in flight, figure out while we are spending money that some of it is not going to work out and stop it or change it. Also, we, we became so, so good at it that about 30-ish, 40% of the budget, we could actually refactor while we were spending it. Now, remember, for most companies, they would have only realized after all the money spent that this didn't work, Well, we could figure yeah. it out while we were spending money. When I presented that to, to our CFO, she said, well, uh, win while you spend is great, but win before you spend is better. Apologies for cutting off the brilliant Abernash right there. It's an outrageous tease, I know. But we have another full half an hour to cover. Next week, we'll get into the detail of crazy pre-testing and how to use it successfully to win before you spend. How to use different data sources, Abernash's observations on leadership, and much more. Thanks again to Insight Platforms for their support and to Human Made Machine for sponsoring this episode. To explore how creative testing can directly impact your ROI, visit humanmademachine.com. See you next week.